This is My Playbook. My name is Simon Mundy, and in this podcast, created by Greenhouse Sports, we'll be hearing from a host of inspiring people about who and what influenced, supported, and encouraged them during challenging moments. We'll find out what they learned along the way, as well as what they want to share and pass on. Greenhouse Sports is the charity that uses sport to help disadvantaged young people and communities. Their core belief is that every child deserves opportunities and a fair chance to get on in life. And through Greenhouse's coaches and partners, they look to make that a reality. The work they do is about encouraging young people through sport and teaching them the life skills they need. Greenhouse Sports has recently celebrated its 20th anniversary. And over the last 20 years, the charity has helped more than 50,000 young people in London. But there are a further 4 million people across the UK right now that they would like to help. And if you would like to find out more about their work and how you could help support another generation of young people, please head to greenhousesports.org to find out more. In the meantime to this episode in which I speak to entrepreneur, agent, lawyer and mentor Simon Bent. Simon's worked with Greenhouse since its earliest days, first as a coach and then as a prolific fundraiser. Last year, he successfully completed a 100-mile charity run alongside rugby league legend Jamie Peacock. And this year, Simon is raising the bar even higher by completing in the Marathon de Sable, known as the toughest foot race on earth. He will run over 156 miles in six days while carrying everything he needs to survive on his back, all in one of the world's most inhospitable environments, the Sahara Desert. Clearly, physically it's tough, but this is undoubtedly one of the mentally most challenging events on the planet. We talk about what Simon is expecting to face in both body and mind, and discuss mentors, mental health, and the why that will be driving him through the brutal desert conditions. I was at the lowest ebb I could ever possibly be. And so for me now, Marathon de Sable is a walk in the park. Like mm. nothing will ever be as hard as that. And I think that the Marathon de Sable probably attracts people who've had similar experiences whereby we've been to dark places. Once you've been to a certain place, there's not much else that knocks you over. It was a pleasure talking to Simon and I hope you enjoy our conversation. Simon Dent, how lovely to see you. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Friday, sun is shining, can't complain. I'm very excited to talk to you. I think we've got a fascinating subject to dig into. You've got a long and rich history with Greenhouse Sports as a coach and as a fundraiser, and we are going to get to that. But first things first, you are running the Marathon des Sables. It's dubbed the toughest foot race on earth. It's a 156-mile race which is equivalent to running six marathons in six days with a double marathon thrown in for good measure on day four, up and down sand dunes in the Sahara Desert where temperatures regularly reach 50 degrees Celsius. Even just saying what I've just said and describing the race in those terms brings me out in a something of a nervous sweat. How does it make you feel? Yeah, it's funny. When you speak to other people about it, it sounds a bit more serious than when I talk to myself about it in my own head. So I tend not to speak to people about it, to be honest with you. Um, 
I feel like I've been building up to this for a few years now, uh, and I like testing myself. I like challenging myself. I think, obviously, one of the main reasons I'm doing this is, is to raise some money for, for Greenhouse Sports and Delalia Rugby Works. And I think if you're, you're asking people to part with their hard-earned cash, you, you need to do something quite drastic. So, yeah, I'm kind of... Um, it's exciting. I, I'm, I'm not daunted by it, and, and I, I think, you know, I'm capable of doing it. I like that. Quite drastic. <laughs> understatement and i know you've been putting in the training i gave you a little buzz earlier and you sent me a picture of you out pounding the streets and you're obviously a seasoned runner you've done some epic runs for greenhouse already and we'll touch on them in a mo but i know you've slightly tweaked your training just latterly to prepare yeah. yourself for what you're gonna be facing out in the sahara yeah it's, it's very different to sort of training for a, for a normal marathon Thankfully, it's not about time. You know, I've, I've been running a lot of, sort of marathons over the last few years and you sort of get really caught up in PBs and splits and your type of trainers and, your, you know, the, all that sort of carry on. And actually, Marathon de Saab is it's not against the clock at all. It is a, just about getting round. So that pressure's removed, which is quite nice. But then there's other things thrown in. I think, obviously, the fact it's self-sufficient. So... We have to carry everything our, of our own. So apart from water and our tent. So we're going to be running with about 10 kgs on our backs. And then obviously things you've touched on there is running on sand and, and running into temperatures up to 50 degrees. So it's a few of those variables and, and, and factors you can't really train for. But yeah, I can get out of my pack on. And also as it's a stage race and it's over sort of six, seven days, just getting used to running when you're tired and you, you don't get much rest, because obviously, usually when I run events in the UK, you, you've got the sort of the dream at the end of a Domino's pizza and a hot bath in your own bed. Whereas I'm going to be dreaming of freeze dried food, no bed and little sleep. So, yeah, it's, there's a few different factors to consider. You touched on. The self-sufficient part. So as mm. you said, it means you've got to carry everything you need for the whole six days on your back as you run. All your clothing, your sleeping bag, your mat, your food, mm. your medical equipment, everything like that. Two questions. First of all, how packed and ready are you in terms of what you're taking? Have you decided? Because I know people can get a bit um, neurotic about it. There's stories of people cutting their toothbrushes in half, sawing off the ends of their toothbrushes, weighing out specific amounts of loo roll. Have you been... Going to the yeah. nth degree? Yeah, I'm sort of entering that world now, to be honest. There's some mandatories we have to take, and that ranges from things such as compasses, a lighter, a distress flare, to an anti-venom pump. But then there are things they describe as a luxury item, and they include within that things like toothbrushes and inflatable pillows. And I mean, obviously, we're not going to have any running water for seven days or anything like that. There's no toilet. The sort of caffeines of this, the gels and the sort of the things we have to eat to get our calorie camp and carbs in sometimes play havoc the stomach. So yeah, it's going to be interesting. I heard a few people, or I read a few people say actually that, that yeah, gels and the classic nutrition that runners tend to go for actually is a bit sniffed at. It's more like macadamia nuts, chorizo, yeah. that kind of stuff. You just want like really dense, high calorie food, right? Yeah, no, that's good. You've done your research, clearly. The, the macadamia nut is, yeah, highly sought after in the Sahara. Um, <laughs> but obviously, they're quite difficult to pack. So it's sort of, I'm going with a company called Expedition Foods who prepare 
freeze-dried meals. So obviously you add hot water or water and you get your meal out of the bag, as it were. We all have to have a minimum of 2,000 calories a day. So they check at the start of the race, we've all got that. And then a lot of people talk about how you do lose your appetite in extreme heat. So as well as taking on salt tablets and lots of water, you have to try and get calories in you. So whether that's a lot of people talk about biltong is very good, macadamia nuts, you'd mentioned chorizo, or sort of your more traditional bars. I've tested the freeze-dried food, and actually these days they're, they're, they're quite pleasant. I mean, my dad used to be in the army, and I remember he, he used to go, go and exercise and sort of come back with these what were army rations in the 80s, and my God, like things have improved a lot since then. <laughs> so, yeah, I can't complain. I've also read about the importance of picking the right shoes. I read one blog where some guy invested in some fancy shoes. He hadn't even run in them before day one. And he said that was yeah. the biggest mistake. And he attached a few photos of the state of his feet that were pretty gruesome. So are your trainers run in? And also, have you considered sticking them in a bag and using them as a pillow to save on yeah. space? Yeah. Do three tactics your way here. So yeah, no, it's good. I like it. No, I mean, I, I, the tra- footwear is important. I mean, they... Just for some perspective for the listeners, they actually, we have 25 full-time medics um, who are on the race with us. And the biggest issue that people have are their feet, mainly because your shoe size, your feet swell twice your shoe size. So you're an eight, I'm an eight and a half here. You're advised to take a, wear a 10 and a half. But not only that, but it's obviously the, the lack of washing facilities. So your feet don't get washed for a week. That's compounded by obviously the heat. Then obviously the running on um, the sand. So if you think when your foot is in a shoe anyway, it moves enough. When it's in, on sand, it really moves. So foot care is a massive thing. And so yeah, I'm I'm very aware that picking the right shoes is pretty much pivotal in this whole yeah expedition. Okay, so you've got to be self sufficient. So you've got to carry everything. Everything that is except water that you get given. And I'm going to attempt pronunciation here bivouac, so, which is like a nomadic tent. And you're sleeping shoulder to shoulder with seven strangers every night. And I've heard that while you don't know them at the start, by the end, they're like blood brothers and sisters. Do you know anyone going? Yes, yeah, it's, it's a good question. It's a really good point because I think that is one of the main sort of, I think, part of the experience of the Marathon Sub is, is sharing with people. I'm quite fortunate, actually. I've sort of I've been introduced to a brother and sister who live quite close to me. So they're actually coming over tomorrow morning. We're meeting up. We're going on the run together and we're going for lunch together just to sort of start to get to know each other. Completely by coincidence, my mother and father-in-law taught them both at school. So oh, how funny. they said they're really, you know, amazing brother and sister. So I'm excited about that. And I ran a, a two-day event a month ago and met another person who's coming. So we created a WhatsApp group and we've actually now got eight people but no it's, it's a big part of it and I think it's you're right that the, the sort of sharing of experience like this is, is really important so you sort of feel like you're getting to know them now but compared to how yeah. deeply you're going to get to know them when you're all digging um you know yeah. an emotional and spiritual I've heard well yeah. out there the difference will be profound you know it'll be so surface level at this point compared to you know, at oh, the, no. the WhatsApp group is very tentative about sort of, has anyone tried this sort of running top? And it's all very, yeah, where I can imagine, yeah, fast forward day three, we're all crying into each other's chest. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Two in the morning. Yeah. Um, but no, yeah, it's, it's good to sort of be introduced to the guys and gals. There's some logistical things that obviously that 
you know, you have to then consider, obviously some people will be getting back to 10 hours before others. And so from what I've seen from previous years, the sort of rule is that if you get back first, you have to clear the tent, uh, make sure there's no sort of stones on the rug, prickly things, get the fire going. But I suppose if you're first back to tent, you have first digs on where you sleep in the tent, which yeah. apparently the corners are the best because they're, they're the best shielded from the sandstorms at night. As well, you're not sandwiched between two people, yeah. one of whom may be snoring. And, well, snoring and is interesting. I, I did actually ask if anyone's a snorer and no one responded. So, <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, you're not going to share that, are you? Well, it's a real problem if you've got a snorer, I think. Are you a snorer? <laughs> I'm not a snorer. Okay, that's good. Yeah. And I have heard that there's more of an air of camaraderie hmm. than competition in the Marathon des Sables, which, you know, as you said, it's just, it's not about PBs and times and stuff like that. It's really about getting around and getting round together, which is a lovely element. Yeah, totally. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm all about community. I'm all about building and fostering relationships. And I think it's so exciting that you're going to be not only creating a community with like-minded sort of Brits, but... It's a hugely international field. There's going to be, I think there's 1,100 runners this year from all over the world. And we are all going to be massively tested, but we all have this common goal to get through it. And and from what I've seen in previous years, it is very much a team effort and people really do help each other out, which when we're all stripped back bare and, you know, we've touched on earlier about having no technology, iPhones or whatever. There's no phones work, no internet. It's really quite exciting as to sort of what we can achieve together. Yeah. And where you're going to go to, that's what I'm really interested mm. in. Because so this morning when you're out doing your 11 miles, you sent me a picture and you had your, your headphones on. But like you said, you're going to be disconnected, no mobile phone signal and being alone with your thoughts up and down sand dunes for hours on end. You're going to have a lot of time to contemplate life and what's yeah. important to you, which I imagine will be both torturous as well as beautiful. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I'm, the, the thing I'm probably most nervous about is that I love journaling and writing things down. I'm a big believer in you don't know what you've thought until you've written it down. And I think that I've got a terrible memory and I, and I, and I really imagine and I hope that I'm going to come up with some really profound things. And I journal every morning and I journal every evening. And so just not having that ritual of writing down, I'll miss that. So maybe that actually, I'm going to have to bite the bullet on that and take the added weight of a journal. It does sound almost like a, a meditation retreat, uh, albeit a very physically painful one. Is that the sense you're getting? Yeah, I, I think that the it attracts a certain type of person. Everyone, massively goal-driven um, individuals, of which I am one. So I think it's a it's definitely a like-minded group of people. 30% of the field are ex-services and within that, a high proportion are ex-special forces across all countries' armies, which is quite interesting. I think that, that says quite an interesting, quite a lot. But I do feel that for me, I just wanted to really test myself. And, and from the research I'd done, I was quite lucky because I, I sort of fell into running really. And it's, I'm really blessed that running is something you need zero talent for. Every other sport pretty much has a huge part of its talents, whereas actually running, all you need to do is put trainers on and walk out your house and put one foot in front of the other. Most people can do that. And I think that for me is, is quite easy because if you combine that with discipline, which again, I'm quite blessed to have, a talentless sport that involves tenacity and discipline, it's, just, it's right in my sweet spot. So I wanted to test myself for what I've read is the hardest one on earth. So, so here we go. And for those 
moments where invariably your mind is going to be screaming out, please stop. And I've had enough. I'm done. I'm toast. Are you prepared for that? Yeah, I am. And I see it. I'm I'm usually okay with that, right? In in England, when I've run ultras and you know hundred milers, and we did one last year actually, last April, last Easter uh, for Greenhouse, we ran a hundred miles around London, um, three or four of us, and it was incredibly challenging. Definitely the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. It took twenty four hours, but I think where I'm, I'm, it's going to be interesting in the Sahara is because it's really unknown. So the 50 degree heat, the lack of food that I can go, I can keep going. I can keep going, but I, I wonder, there will be a moment where I wonder if there is a, something that comes into your body that tells you actually you must stop now because if you don't, something seriously wrong will happen medically. Yeah. So it's that sort of, you know, in my head, I, I do always have this, this thought of there's always 40% more and that has gotten me through every other endurance event I've done but I just need to sort of get my head around that in the desert and I think the great thing about it is that it's not a race so you know if if I am feeling depleted dehydrated ill sick dizzy I can stop I can even have a little kip for an hour I can get into the shade I can have some water and then I can walk and you know it's not like I'm again really running against the clock. Yeah. I mean, obviously there is a clock, but it's sort of, it's not, I'm not going to be really pushing myself that hard. And so you touched on the heat again, the Sahara, dry heat, 50 mm. degrees. You can't prepare for 50 degrees at any time in this country. So how have you prepared for that? Well, Brighton University, which is just down the road, have a heat acclimatization centre. So I've actually volunteered to be a bit of a guinea pig for them. So the week before I travel to Morocco, I'm going to be in there every day for two hours on a treadmill and they're going to get me up to 50 degrees heat and they are going to do tests on me. So they're going to be testing my surface temperature, my inner core temperature and my decision-making under heat stress. Now, this is the week that I'll be going. So if whatever they find, it might be a bit late. But um acclimatization it's what professional athletes do before they go and play fixtures or run races in alien environments so you know i do have that which is good but you haven't done it yet no exactly and I, you know I, I was fortunate enough to go to to dubai and lanzarote recently and you know i was out running in what i thought was quite hot but it wasn't it was 25 degrees oh, <laughs> man. what I was like, yeah, it's my warm weather training. And I was like, oh my God, it's going to be double this heat. So yeah, who knows? I think one of the only other things mandatory in the race is salt tablets. So they give you a bag of salt tablets and you, I think you have to take one every two hours. And there's a high correlation between people who forget to take them and, and unfortunately those who become very ill during the Marathon de Sable. So again, it's down to discipline and also not having your decision-making impaired because of the heat. Because again, one of the biggest things that happens in the heat is that people forget to drink, they forget to eat, they forget to rest. They, and so, yeah, you've just got to, you've got to stay on point. You've got to get into a routine. But yeah, the, the Brighton Uni uh, Heat Climatization Centre will be a massive help. Because if, if I didn't have that coming up, I, I probably would be a bit nervous about what would happen on, on day one at midday. 
and I know you've got to have an ECG and full medical as well before you go. Yeah. So yeah, and not- to be honest, last year before I did the hundred mile for greenhouse, I went and had a full body MOT, which I don't think I've had in adult life, and that was actually quite daunting, but reassuring when the results came back. So yeah, the ECG, and again, it's the, they don't suffer fools like a lot of people get out to Morocco and on the registration day before you know you start people get turned away because the organizers aren't happy so it's it's a very professional well-run event they do have the sort of the safety measures in place so yeah now let's talk about day four the double marathon because Mm. it's all well and good talking about 50 degree heat and stuff but Mm. on that day or rather that night you know you're going to be running in pitch black a complete 180 from the rest of the experience so have you done anything to help you prepare for that which is going to be well, a- that, that's interesting as well because obviously worth highlighting that in the desert it can drop to, to minus numbers at night so not only again this goes back to the sort of the self-sufficiency of the race in our backpacks we've going to have our sleeping bags woolly hats some sort of fleece because at night it gets really cold so yeah think about that the fourth day, I think we set off, it's going to be 54 miles. So we set off, I think, 9 a.m. Now, the way I'm sort of already planning that day is that it's going to be a walk-run day. And I want to be back in camp, preferably by midnight. So that's a 15, 16-hour day. So you've got to factor in you're not only your nutrition, so you're going to have breakfast, but you do you are going to have to then at some point throughout the day, put your stove on and eat a proper meal because there's no way you can get through a whole day or 16 hours on breakfast. But then, yeah, when when the sun goes down at around 7 p.m., the temperatures drop. So that's an interesting time because obviously when you've been out running for so long and your body is um, exhausted and the temperatures drop, you can get yourself in a bit of trouble. So I fully intend to get in around midnight. You'll obviously will be lit up by the moonlight We'll have our head torches on. We will be back in camp. And yeah, a lot of people actually, it can take them up to 24 hours, that leg of it, which is a huge amount of time on their feet. But I, you know, I fully intend to get back to camp around midnight. And at least that then gives me some rest, some proper rest. Um, those who attempt that day and end up walking most of it, if you're on your feet for 24 hours, I mean, that is that is probably harder than running 12 hours. So, yeah, it's a, that, that long day is, I think it's the one where sort of up to 30% of the field drop out. So, again, it's sort of going back to that point around decision-making and, and how far you can push yourself. I think there's going to be a number of moments in that day where the sort of dark thoughts come in. Yeah. And it's just pushing them to one side. Yeah, sure. To quote Donald Rumsfeld, there are known unknowns and there are unknown unknowns. So that's what you've got to look forward to. But one thing that you do know, I know that there's an app to track you. It's being screened on YouTube. And then quite beautifully, family and friends can email and um, send texts. And these all get printed out at the end of the day. So, I mean, you're going to be a blubbering mess in the evenings, aren't you? Yeah, I've just got visions of sort of big brother, not big brother, jungle, when they let your yeah. family. <laughs> yeah. um, no, but I think, yeah, that, that that's going to be interesting. So they're, they're, they're the, the organisers provide an email address for you to give to your family and friends. And I think that's, 
that's really interesting because obviously they then print the emails and bring them to your tent at night. And I think for me, that will be, yeah, correct. Blubbering mess. Um, <laughs> and just to make hmm. that even more impactful, your wife is expecting a baby very soon as well. well you're both expecting a baby very soon. So I'm sure yeah. that will be front and center in your mind. Yeah, that's that's been timed quite well, I think. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we have a baby due uh, on the 13th of June. So it's sort of the last day of the MDS is uh, May 1st. So, yeah, it's going to be interesting receiving sort of, well, hopefully receiving some messages from people. If I don't receive any messages from people, uh, but everyone else is receiving loads of messages, that'd be quite interesting. Yeah, that'd be, um, you'll be crying, but for the wrong reason. Yeah. I'd just be reading everyone else's. <laughs> no, that'd be cool. And I think, you know what, that going back to sort of, you know, the, the why and all of this, running to raise money for, for greenhouse sports and Dalia Rugby Works. I think that that will really help me. And I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm sure a couple of the guys, gals from the charities will, will send me the odd email. And I think that will really, really help because it's, it's why I'm doing it. And I think that that just, and again, the fundraising, and you mentioned about the app where people can follow me. I think it's, I'm doing what I can sort of on social media. I've, I've never been on Instagram before. I've set up an Instagram account to sort of, sort of track my, or sort of, you know, show what I'm doing in the training front. And we've raised around £7,000. I really hope to get that by quite a bit. And hopefully, actually, the week I'm in the Sahara, we can sort of somehow get some updates to people um, and hopefully people following on the app. Yeah, Not yeah. Just- successfully follow me on the app and i'm not sort of disappearing off in the wrong direction <laughs> yeah yeah if we see your blip heading off in an awkward direction we'll be sure to <laughs> send a text get after him so as you mentioned you're raising money for greenhouse sports and you've got a, a rich history of raising money for for greenhouse i know you've raised six figures for them you did 100 miles as you said last year and you were doing that with Jamie Peacock, rugby league legend, who's also a cracking fella. And you did 52 miles with him the year before. So you've got a rich history with greenhouse sports in terms of, of fundraising. And I know it goes more than that. And I'll, I'll ask you about that. But in terms of the fundraising, just give us a bit of an overview of what you've done for greenhouse over the years. Yeah, it's... Yeah, I mean, I think, as you touched on, I sort of I first came into contact with the charity probably in their first or second year that they were going, which is probably about 18, 19 years ago now. And I was kindly introduced to, to Mike DeGiorgio, the founder, by a good friend of mine, Shane Mitchell, who used to do a lot of work with Greenhouse. Back in the day, they used to be based in Shepherd's Bush, and I, I lived around the corner. And I did a bit of coaching for them down in Burgess Park when they had football as one of their sort of programs. I stayed in touch with Mike over the years, and then... Probably about six years ago, my business, Dark Horses, um, a creative agency based in Farringdon, we did some work for for Greenhouse and helped them with some marketing and and created some sort of activation and creative assets. And yeah, so I sort of, that really triggered me to reconnect with the charity. And they've obviously had moved on massively in that 20 years, providing after school coaching for over 6,000 children now, primarily in London, but they've now moved out to other parts of the country. And so, yeah, it was really about helping them raise some money. And as you said, I can't claim much credit for the for the for the big fundraisers because having Jamie Peacock alongside you really helped me get some attention on on what we're doing. But we've, yeah, we ran fifty two miles in in twenty twenty one. We ran a hundred miles last year, and and the combined fundraise on them is about one hundred twenty thousand pounds. So yeah, really proud of what we've done. But I think it's 
uh, yeah, we, you know, I didn't want it to stop with a hundred miles last year. So hence, you know, moving the dial up to the marathon. So I've got those what we're going to do next Oh, year. mate, Simon, <laughs> I dread to think. I really <laughs> dread to think. I really have ideas. But you clearly then have a real affinity for greenhouse sports. You've been involved as a coach, as a fundraiser for a couple of decades. And obviously, I've got to know the charity through doing this. And the work they do is really profound, isn't it? It really is. And yeah, I I can't imagine my life without sport. And And I think as a child growing up, all my best memories, my fondest memories, whether that's in the garden after school, at school, with friends, Saturday morning, Sunday, summer evenings, whatever, were based around sport and the simplest of sports, whether it was, you know, football, whether it was, you know, a game of tennis, whether it was a table tennis, whether it was basketball, whatever it was, my defining moments of childhood. And then, of course, you know, we're talking about me running now, like it's a sport my career has always had sport baked into it. You know, I've been a sports agent. I've run a creative agency focused on sports, sports marketing. And so it's such a massive part of my life. And, you know, the the, the amazing work the charity does is obviously gives children access to it, to sport that that otherwise wouldn't have. And, and, you know, that, that for me is so, so powerful. And, and, it makes me really sad to think that some children don't have access to sport. And the reason I'm doing this is to, is to, to help fund coaches. And it, it costs roughly around £25,000 to get a coach into a school. And so that is, you know, for, for a year. So for me, I say we've raised 7000 I'd love to get it close to 25000 because at least then we know that we've, we've provided another school with access to a, a coach, a full-time coach for one year, which you know that's that's probably going to have a positive impact on hundreds of children's lives which is a real motivator Mm. sport can obviously have such a profound impact on people's well-being self-esteem all those things but it's about more than that at greenhouse as well isn't it it's the sort of mentoring side of coaching and providing that someone who really gets to know their mentees and can almost be like either a, a bigger brother or a bigger sister or a parental figure and provide some of these kids with the love and attention perhaps they haven't always been getting in other areas. And I know mentoring and that kind of thing is important to you too. It's I know it's something mm-hmm. you take seriously. So what do you make about that side of what Greenhouse does and the impact it can have? Having positive role models in your life especially when you're young is so important and I think that a lot of the children that Greenhouse have exposure to or work with are unfortunately from single parent homes and are missing usually a father figure role model and positive role model and I think the coach at Greenhouse can become that and there's so many fantastic stories and I even you know I'm mates with some of the people that have been through the greenhouse and have benefited from greenhouse and they're doing the most amazing things and and that they weren't dealt a very fair hand at the start in life but because of the influence the greenhouse had on their lives they're now doing incredible things within society but also spreading the greenhouse message so it's hugely hugely important and i you know there's so much going on in the world and there's so much negativity in the world and obviously 
we're three years post the start of the pandemic and it's sort of that's created its own problems in, in the communities that greenhouse are in so yeah i i i'm beating my drum as loud as i can to shine a light on greenhouse and, and as i said earlier it hopefully we can raise some money but even if we don't raise money just the spreading of the name of the brand and increasing the awareness will hopefully help because as you said these these coaches are fantastic people and but it, they need funding and this series has been about mentors and we've all been impacted by people at key moments during our lives or those fortunate enough to have had those so can you think of any mentors or key people who've really inspired you or helped you at key moments of your life to get you to where you are now? That's oh, a really good question because I think it's, and it's something I think about a lot. And I think that through no fault of anybody, I think that the, I don't think I had really any when I was growing up, when I was young. I think probably back in the 70s and 80s, it was, it was just a bit different the way the world was then was that you sort of just got on with things and unless someone was visibly not quite right i don't think people ever felt the need to ask someone or give someone the opportunity to have someone to mentor them if that makes sense yeah um, i actually think that it was really after i had my own challenges with mental health in my sort of early thirties when I fell out of the legal profession and sort of went on the journey that I'm now on in sort of managing talent and, and, you know, running and owning a creative agency. I think that I met some really amazing people. I think I've been very blessed to, to work with some of the best professional sportsmen and women in this country, and they've provided me with huge amounts of inspiration. I've had businesses with the likes of sort of Lawrence Delalio, who obviously Delalio Rugby Works, um, we're also raising money with. But yeah, I think I, there's a number of people in adult life who I've sort of spent time with. But to be brutally honest, I've sort of, I've sought people out through literature, through reading. I try and read two books a month. So I feel like I have around me a group of amazing people that I don't even, I don't know, they don't know me, but I know them. And every time they post something on YouTube or release a book, uh, you know, I absorb it. And, and as you know, I, I'm, I'm really keen on meeting people and, and sharing information. We, we're part of a WhatsApp group that's been going sort of four years now, whereby I think there's over a hundred people in it now. And it's a, it's a collection of people who have, we've all met each other through different walks of life, but we all now sit in this WhatsApp group and, and share information. There's everyone, you know, from elite sportsmen to founders, entrepreneurs, multi-millionaires, recovering drug addicts, recovering alcoholics, all sharing information and messaging. And, you know, that group's called the tribe of mentors. And I think everyone in that group is a mentor and is the sharing information that's so powerful. So I'm a, I'm a huge believer in, in, in mentorship. I wouldn't like to sort of yeah name names, but there are some people that have, have had a profound influence on my life in the last sort of five to eight years. Yeah, I completely understand what you say about the seventies and eighties. I can really resonate with that. And I interviewed for my own podcast a guy called Bessel van der Kolk, who's written the very famous book on trauma called "The Body Keeps the Score." And it and he speaks about um, we tend to think of trauma as a bad event but actually not being seen and heard can be 
just as impactful, actually. He gave a really interesting example of uh, during the Blitz, the kids who stayed behind in London with their families and were surrounded by bombed out buildings and could see death actually coped emotionally better than the kids who were sent away from their families to the safety of the countryside. So you touched on growing up without necessarily feeling like you had that. And, you know, and I can relate to that. And then bringing it back to Marathon des Sables, where you're going to be stripped down and and you're going to get into the weeds, if you like, of your own psyche to a degree. Are you conscious that you might kind of go to some of those places? Yeah, no, it's interesting. I mean, as I said, you know, probably not the forum to go into too much detail. But as I said, you know, I had some challenges in my mental health. And that, you know, that, that, that results in me being a day patient in a private hospital for six months and stripping me down to my bare bones. And I was at the lowest ebb I could ever possibly be. And so for me now, Marathon de Saab is a walk in the park. Like mm. nothing will ever be as hard as that. And I think that the Marathon de Saab probably attracts people who've had similar experiences whereby we've been to dark places. And I know that because of that and it's not a badge of honor or something I'm proud of I have a high pain tolerance and I do know that that in you know again when you the ultra running community you often stand at the start line and you can just see the fire behind people's eyes like there's a lot of people that have been through similar experiences and mine's just you know relatively small there's people who've been through some horrific traumas I regard you know, my mental health problems, they were what they were and I got on with it and I'm, I'm here now. And I, But I do think that, yeah, once you've been to a certain place, there's not much else that knocks you over and that is quite reassuring. I'm, you know, I'm not proud of it because it's, maybe I wish I hadn't have had that happen to me, but then it's, it is what it is. Yeah, it's part of your story, right? And I appreciate you sharing that and it's, like you said, it's made you who you are and there's no shame in that. I think we all we all have our demons and we all have things to face, don't we? And yeah. and I think a line that I read about the Marathon des Sables, which I thought was really beautiful, is that the, the organisers say there's a pre-Marathon des Sables version of you and then a post-Marathon des Sables version of you. So I'm, I, I can't wait to hear how, how you go. go. And I just want to say, you know, stay safe, come home in one piece um, <laughs> and absolute best of luck. I, I can't wait to hear all about it and, and I can't wait to to keep tabs on you to make sure that you stay on the straight and narrow, quite literally. Yeah, no, thank you, and I, and I appreciate that. And yeah, I'm I'm as I said, I'm looking forward to it. I'm I've, I've I've trained hard. I'm not being reckless. It's not something you know. I am taking it seriously. We've had it. We've had a bit of a joke about it, but yeah, I'm taking it very seriously. And and you know, I'm well and truly loading the bases in my favour to, to 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 get it done. But no, I'll I'll, I'll definitely report back. Yeah. Um, and maybe, yeah, we'll do a sort of post-Simon Dench marathon. Mate, I, I would love to hear about it. I think you're in for a truly profound experience. And I really can't wait to hear about it. And I would just encourage anyone to follow you and give money and send texts and, and all that stuff. Brilliant. I'll keep you posted how I'm getting on. Do it. All right, Simon Dent, thank you so much for talking. It's been lovely speaking to you. Thanks, Simon. Cheers. Thank you for listening to this episode of My Playbook with agent and entrepreneur Simon Dent. 
As I mentioned at the start, Greenhouse have recently celebrated their 20th anniversary. Please do check out the incredible work they do by visiting greenhousesports.org. And if you'd like to get involved and help, please do get in touch. All the details are on their websites. And please do share, rate and review this episode wherever you can. Thank you for listening. And until next time, goodbye.